This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 408, April the 13th, 1998. In this session, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Brian Abshire, and I will continue our discussion of Cal Seedon's planning. Susan uh, Burns had to leave us. Now, I concluded by calling attention to the recognition by one scholar in particular, but also by others, that we are at the end of an age, that the world is now dealing with a mind-out vein as far as humanistic statism is concerned. People are disillusioned. They have lost faith in salvation by the state. They're looking for something. They're not ready to take anything uh, different as of yet. But before it's over, they will be forced to it. This presents us with a very, very great opportunity as Christians. We have an opportunity to mold the civilization for centuries to come. We will not do this by continuing as we have with our rather superficial uh, churchianity. Andrew mentioned earlier the fact that we are going to begin in just a few weeks, a series of uh, weekly lectures for six weeks, the first being on the infallibility of the Bible. Now, we're doing this because we feel the church is neglecting essential points of doctrine. For example, how many churches and how many seminaries will actually teach anything extensive, solid, on the infallibility of Scripture. But all the great confessions of faith include something on it. Most notably, and most uh, extensively, the Westminster Confession of Faith but someone can go through seminary and sit in a congregation his lifetime and hear nothing about the subjects, such as infallibility, the atonement, and so on, except in a very light and superficial way. In fact, if we look at some of the major uh, seminaries that are supposed to be on our side, the most important of the so-called evangelical ones speaks of the issue of the infallibility of Scripture as a dead issue. Another is uh, very much on the aggressive in attacking it. Now, this is the church at its best today. We want to deal with these essential subjects and we hope to make our material available in uh, audio tapes and as uh, well in book form. We have other plans as well for the immediate future. We began uh, one uh, 
plan, a meeting with our underwriters in Seattle, a very successful meeting. We want them to know what we are doing. We want them to share more in our thinking. We're going to hold a somewhat similar meeting in San Jose, California uh, later this month, in about 10 days or so. We want to do the same later on in Southern California and at various points across country. It takes money to do this, but we feel it will be productive insofar as informing you of where we stand, what we hope to do, and getting your support in doing it. Uh, we'll continue now with some more of our thinking and planning for the near future because while we believe we are doing an excellent job, we want always to improve it and to extend its purpose. I was very gratified recently when a major editor who has written for many, many major publications contributed an article to the Chalcedon Report and told me with some amazement he had received more mail and highly intelligent mail from that one article than any other he has ever written. Hmm. So it tells us something about you that you are intelligent and perceptive readers and you think about what you read. Rush, you were talking about conferences and I think that's something we should spend some time on. Uh, as you mentioned, in a few days we'll be holding uh, uh, our Calcedon Conference in San Jose uh, the night before. As you mentioned, will be a special underwriters meeting and then we're planning ones for Atlanta and Clearwater this year and we pray Southern California next year and then a very special conference in the year 2000 that I'll sort of tease you with for a minute and that we'll talk about later but I don't want to monopolize time talking about that because Cal Seaton has appointed a conference director and a very effective one in that and that's Brian Abshire so Brian sort of give us the background on what's going on in the, in the Cal Seaton conferences. Well I think the idea behind Cal Seaton conferences is to be able to take the message and package it if you will and present it to God's people in a way that would be, it's much easier to come across in a conference, for example, than it is a book. It's, it's easier to listen to someone lecture on something than it is to read, you know, two or three chapters in a book. But as well, there are brothers all over the country, and sometimes they have good churches, and we praise God for every good church out there, but sometimes they don't. And there's a feeling of isolation, I think, that a lot of Christians have. The idea behind the Chalcedon Conferences is, one, we minister directly to our underwriters. They sacrifice to support this ministry, so we want to encourage and minister to them. But two, we open it up to brothers all over the place, those who've never heard of, of our concepts before. They have no awareness of it. They, they just know there's something wrong, but no one's still on the answer. So this year, for example, we're doing a one theme. Pardon me. We're taking it to four or five different locations across the country. I think uh, Florida, Atlanta, San Jose, and then down south sometime if we can get it here in California because and, and Brian share that theme with us what? and the theme is the Bible your children and the future 
And basically, I think this is crucial because it talks exactly about what Rush was discussing a few moments ago. What can your children expect in the 21st century? What sort of preparation will they need? What kind of education will they need? How will they find their life mate and, and uh, find a church that's decent? What kinds of sociological and dynamics are going to be happening in the 21st century that your children need to be aware of? So in other words, we're taking, by God's grace, the, the principles of his scripture that are, that are unchanging, that are undeniable, that are true, but then we're going to do, well, not prophecy work, but a little projecting into the future and say, these are the things that you need to do and need to prepare for. The time to prepare for disaster is before the disaster hits, not when it comes. One of the things that kept the light of Christian civilization open and, uh, and, and burning during the great uh, collapse after Rome were the monasteries. Well, we don't believe in monasteries, but we need to have Christian communities that can keep the light yes. of Christian civilization going. This conference will help to show you what that light consists of and how you can kindle it in your own home, in your own church. And so hopefully we will be able to reach a large part of Chalcedon's uh, readership, the Western conferences and Eastern conferences, be able to encourage them. Next year we'll do a different one. And hopefully we'll have five conferences next year leading up to the great year 2000 conference which uh, we've tentatively scheduled for in Chicago, which is in the center of the country. O'Hare Airport is close by. And we'll be dealing with major themes, preparing for spiritual warfare in the 21st century. Uh, and that conference is gonna have some heavy hitters in there who are gonna be sharing. But it's a national conference to which we can invite people from all over the country. Take a week off, spend time with other Christians. Hear some of the most influential and important men of this century talking about uh, things that are central to the faith. Um, you may want to go into more detail about the theme. I've been, I've been holding back on that, yeah. so I wouldn't I wanna, steal your thunder. No, that's okay. Um, I want to point out before I mention that, though, these are really going to be historic conferences because, unfortunately, very few people are saying what Chalcedon is saying. There are the broad evangelicals who uh, have a sort of a, a very soft conservative religion at best. Unfortunately, many of our Reformed brothers are sound uh, theologically, but as far as relentlessly applying the faith in all areas of life, uh, most of them are not doing it. There are the various other denominations, and I'm not uh, going into a, a severe criticism here. That's not our goal. But the point is, at these conferences, you're going to hear things that you virtually will hear virtually nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Uh, historic Christianity, but not only historic Christianity, historic Christianity for the modern world applied relevantly in your individual life and in your church and in your family and in all particular areas of life. Chalcedon is building for the future and if you do believe in a godly Christian future this will be the place to come. Uh, Chalcedon has powerful speakers, several of them are around this table, but there are various other ones that we will have, those that write in the Chalcedon Report and elsewhere, people who share our vision. One thing I like about these conferences is, is the law of unintended consequences. Mm. A lot of people talk about that with reference to economics, but I talk about it with reference to conferences. You see somebody you haven't seen for a long, long time. The great thing about conferences, if you get very dedicated, intelligent Christian people together, it's amazing the ideas they yes. can come up with. In fact, sometimes, I must admit, the ideas mentioned at the conferences by the attendees are better than some of the <laughs> ideas by the speakers, certainly better than some of my ideas. But I think uh, I would urge those of you listening to these tapes, please stay in touch with Calcedon. 
and if, if possible, attend the conferences. We're trying to bring them somewhere close to you so you can drive there, or if it's a flight, it's no more than about a half an hour, an hour flight. Um, we're having, trying to have conferences just all over the country. If you have ideas about conferences or you would like to help us host a conference, yes. please contact Brian Abshire. Please contact Cal Seedon. We may not be able to accommodate everybody, but we want to do our part to work with you. And that's what Cal Seedon is here for. Well, now let's come up to the conference that we want to hold in 2000. And uh, this, God willing, uh, as it stands now, will be in Chicago at the Christian Liberty Academy at uh, Paul Lindstrom's ministry there. Uh, because Brian pastored near there, uh, Brian, would you spend a little time talking about the suitability of the, um, of the entire complex there, the facilities and, and, and that sort of thing, and why we would choose this area, uh, Chicago, and this particular site? Oh, I wish I could remember all the details, because this is one of the great miracle stories of, of how Pastor Paul Lindstrom and his church managed to get a school for basic, well, not for nothing. They paid money for it, but one-tenth of what it was, it was worth. It was a really a miracle. Paul Lindstrom has been a leader in, in Christian education, uh, a good man, a good friend of Calcedon. His associate pastor, uh, Quentin Johnston, is a very godly man and, a, and someone I am privileged to call personal friend. In fact, Paul and Quentin are actually helping out in my church in Milwaukee preaching, uh, and they're doing that just to support that church and help them along. They have a facility that is, a, is huge. It has classrooms for various mini-seminars or mini-conferences. It can seat, I think, 2,000 people in their auditorium, uh, their big gymnasium auditorium. It is conveniently close to hotels and all the things that one would like to see in a major city. Now, I'm not a big city boy myself. I, I'm a country boy. But, you know, it is nice to be at occasion. Uh, the, in the summertime, Chicago can be a beautiful place, especially along Lake Michigan. And, of course, if, it, if it's too much, you can always run across the border to Wisconsin for, you know, a, a sense of reality for a few, for a few minutes. But, but O'Hara is the busiest airport in the world, but it's a central hub for many different airlines. So it's convenient to get to. You don't have to fly to six different places in order to get to it. Um, Pastor Paul and Quentin have been tremendously supportive, and their church will help us to put on, do all the hard work of putting on the conference. So we, from the physical location, it has great facilities. It's near nice hotels and restaurants. It's in a, a part of the city that's pleasant, which is nearby to the various different attractions. So you can bring your whole family. And we're going to, I think we're going to arrange this conference to allow lots of time for people to do sightseeing and fellowship type things during the day uh, as well. Now, it's not as nice as being out in the woods and, you know, hunting and fishing, but then again, uh, you know, not everyone can do that kind of thing. So this, for, if we're an urban conference, this one will be significant. We thought about doing it in Washington, D.C. We talked about that back and forth, but we figured God might judge Washington while we were there, and we didn't want to get caught in the fallout. So Chicago or seems a scandal to be erupting. Or a scandal erupting. So we're, we're hoping this is going to be a, a, a good alternative, a good place. We've talked about the, uh, <clears throat> the sort of order of events. It could be anything from a two- to three-day conference. We're still hammering that out. We'll probably have morning plenary sessions, important speakers, and then early afternoon, maybe 10 or 15 different tracks. Um, for instance, those inter interested in uh, internet work would go um, to one location and hear one particular speaker and those homeschooling another and perhaps pastors and elders to another and of course we would select a, a speaker that could really benefit them and then have the rest of the afternoon free and come back in the evening and have speakers like R.J. Rastuni 
at a large plenary session in the evening. I think we're going to be able to accomplish a great deal at this conference. One other thing, too, about um, the CLA location there, a couple of large gymnasiums and plenty of classroom space. And we're definitely, by God's grace, going to make use of that, and we're very appreciative to uh, CLA and Paul Lindstrom and the, and the Christian brothers there for this very generous offer. Probably also we'll have people there uh, with various uh, displays, uh, various uh, ministries largely in harmony with Calcedon, and much, much more. So stay in touch with us on that, but I hope that you'll be praying about that earnestly. We don't have the dates actually hammered out, but we're convinced it's probably going to be in July of the year 2000. So be much in prayer for that. We can go on from there and talk about some other things. Uh, a burden that I've had and what Rush and I have talked about and Brian and various others is starting, starting various state chapters, uh, reconstruction societies or groups of godly men getting together on a periodic basis to apply the faith, working with, of course, good sound churches. We were able to start one in Ohio and uh, there's now one uh, going, in fact, there are two now in Ohio, so large they had to split into two and we're working on getting one started in Florida and this one looks like it's really going to be one that's going to be quite effective. There's already one going in Arkansas. Bill Einwechter has one going in eastern Pennsylvania. We'd like to get one going in western Pennsylvania and uh, there are several other states. Um, there's one up in I believe the Chicago area yes. started uh, that whole western, sort of Great Lakes, western, western, Lake western Lake Michigan area and there are many others. Uh, frankly, one thing that we're, we're waiting on is we're, we're going to hammer out a manual, which Brian Abshire will certainly help us on, and uh, Calcedon representatives, people to go there uh, and, and to speak, and some of us have already done that. But these two will be means of advancing the faith and getting godly men together dedicated to do something, not just to sit around and talk about ideas, although certainly talking about ideas is important but also taking those ideas and applying them in, in education and in politics and uh, every, every particular area of society where people are hurting, for example, various uh, shelters and, and rest homes and rescue missions and just on and on and on we could talk about. But that's another thing that Calcedon really wants to get behind and, and something that we, we have been involved in and want to get even more involved in. Another thing that I want to mention about uh, Calcedon and especially Ross House book projects is not only reprinting Rush's books, but Rush has a number of books now that are just waiting for publication. We're having, uh, I believe, Genesis and Exodus have already been typeset. We're working on typesetting Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those should be available before long, and, and the Gospel of John, and Rush is finishing 1 Corinthians. So. By God's grace, we hope over the next few years to have quite a few of his commentaries available, plus a book on confession and one on the family he's working on. So let what us pray. Volume 3 of the Institutes. Precisely. Uh, that's going to be the crowning work of the Institutes. It is already finished. We hope that by the end of the year that it will be available. Um, it has been typeset. It has been. I want Rush I to... I have to proofread it now before it goes to the printer. Uh, I would like Rush to go into the main theme of that with respect to liberty because it's a vital theme. Well, one of the points I make that is central to the whole concept of biblical law is this. Our state legislatures, Congress, and so on, uh, passed 
thousands of laws every year. So a good-sized library of uh, new books is created every year by each of these agencies. And yet, the more we control people with these laws, the less law and order do we have. However, according to the rabbinic count of the laws given by God, there are 613 in total. And that total is a somewhat inflated one because several of the laws they take and divide into two or three laws. Whereas we would say, well, this is one law, but it has an application in this and that field. Now, of those 613 laws, many are enforceable only by God. Many cannot be enforced by the state. Many cannot be enforced by the church, which has jurisdiction over some, nor by the family, which again has an area of jurisdiction. What this means is that biblical law provides the greatest charter of liberty any legal system in history has ever done. Amen. Because its faith is not in law. Moreover, in biblical law, we have the premise that it is not law that makes man good, but God. So that the charter of liberty in any society is either God's law or liberty does not exist. And therefore, there is no future for us apart from God's law if we want to be a free people. There's a great deal more that comes out in this third volume, but it is an all-important uh, subject, and this volume is uh, not as large a one as the others. It's over 200 pages only, so it's easily read. I mentioned this on the earlier tape, but I think one thing that it's important for our listeners to understand, one thing Calcine is dedicated to, in fact, I believe the trustees talked about it recently, was generating study guides for the Calcedon books and the Ross House books, and we're, we'll be hiring people to do that. These books are already masterpieces. I could mention several by Rush. They're going to be made immensely valuable if we can also offer a study guide to homeschoolers, for example, so that, well, imagine Institutes of Biblical Law being studied by ninth and 10th graders with a study guide. In fact, we did that here in Calcedon Christian School, I believe, a couple of years ago, but not only institutes. Uh, the One and the Many and Foundations of Social Order and, and Politics of Guilt and Pity and, and various other Calcedon books by other authors. This will be a godsend to, to homeschoolers and homeschool parents who can not only read the book but have a study guide attached with perhaps tests and quizzes and all that sort of thing so that these can be instilled right into the minds of, of students, not only for students, younger students, but adult Bible study classes, for example. So I think this is going to be a real valuable contribution. Something else that we've talked about that we, we cannot start right now, but we certainly want to do in the future, is Calcedon Campus organizations. Uh, 
I see Brian over there shaking his head. Brian, unlike me, spent some time on several evangelical campuses. Uh, <clears throat> the, the main Christian campus organizations over the last, oh, 40, 50 years have been basically that, evangelical. And I don't want to mention any names, but in essence, they're all sort of uh, pop evangelical, if I can use that term. Very insubstantial, uh, sort of evidentialist apologetics, and um, a very juvenile faith. I hope that what we can do by God's grace is eventually hire someone to be a campus representative for Cal State and start campus organizations on both Christian campuses and secular campuses capturing the minds of students between, oh, 18 and 22 years old, and seminary campuses also, but especially college campuses, capturing the minds of these young people. Can you imagine what can be done if rather than getting all of the evangelical nonsense, not to mention the secular nonsense and the humanism, they have inculcated in them a very powerful dedication to the Reformed faith, Christian civilization, Christian reconstruction, a strong view of biblical infallibility and the atonement and theonomy and presuppositionalism and postmillennialism and the application of faith in all spheres of life on down the line. Well, that is the time to, time to capture them. And I think that's one thing I think that will be very valuable for Chalcedon to do in the future. Brian, you may want to add something along the line, having spent time on, on some of these campuses. I was just going to say, Andrew, that, that one of the frustrating aspects of being a pastor is dealing with a man who's 42 years old, has been married for 15 years, he's got teenage children, and he's got this problem, and he's got that problem, and he's got this problem over here, because for the last 15 or 20 years of his life, when he was making all of his important life decisions, what will I study? What will I do for work? Who will I marry? How will I raise my kids? Where will I live? During that crucial part of his life, he had no sound biblical wisdom. He should have got it from his parents, but we know. No. We're in the third generation of dysfunctional parents in America. He should have got it from his church, but they never taught that stuff because they were too busy holding hands for Jesus. He, he's, he thought he might have gotten it at the university level, but they are God-hating pagans there, and they probably eroded his faith. The time to get that man is when he's young. That's right. When he's, before he's made those life decisions. Absolutely. This ministry that you're talking about, a campus representative, we don't just need one guy, we need That's a lot right. of those. And that is something we, we've got to grab that whole generation before they make life decisions yes. and show them how the wisdom of God applies to their situation. If we can get them then, we can change them for the rest of their lives. And Brian, it's interesting, you were talking to me the other day, I believe last Sunday or Sunday before last, about something that you would like us to do, and that is have a, a sort of a separate periodical just for a particular classification of these basically these people or those at least young adults oh I, I think the Chalcedon report is the finest publication in America today and I say that not because I write for it not because you edit it you're my friend not because Rush started it I'm saying it objectively there is no place else in the country where you can get the the balance of articles the depth of biblical insight however you do have to be interested in our subject matter and what I was suggesting and what we were talking about is I think we need to target our, our uh, college-age brothers. Because let's face it, there are as many as 40 million evangelical Christians out there. Our mailing list is pretty good, but it ain't anywhere near 40 million. We need to target those, those college and university-age students with a magazine designed to show how what we're teaching affects deliberately where they're studying, especially if they're in secular universities. 
being able to deal with deconstructionism, being able to deal yes. with the latest heresy that's going on. Political showing, correctness, yes. Showing them the pragmatic aspects of, of uh, courtship versus dating, for example. No one's ever told them this. They've never heard it before. And when they finally do hear it, it'll probably be secondhand from some, you know, poison source, and so they're going to be adamantly against us. But we could target those people with a magazine that's aimed for them. And then guess what? It might be Aunt Sally or Grandma or Uncle Bob who sends it to them. And they might get it, if it you know, first of all, because, you know, okay, some more junk someone sent me. But if we can target them correctly and write articles from a consistent, comprehensive, biblical worldview, we can capture an entire generation. This is something I think we, we've just got to plan on doing. If we don't get them, someone else is. Yes. We have been discussing some of the things we have in mind to do as quickly as possible. A great deal more remains to be said, but we'll leave that for some other occasion. However, I think we ought to give Brian a chance now to describe what he is doing in Modesto. He's come there to take over a fine little group, a very small group, but a fine one, and to build a strong church there, as well as to make a transition from there to up here at Vallecito full-time. Brian, would you tell us something about the objectives you have in mind? Sure, Rush. I, I happen to inherit a wonderful church called Reformed Heritage Church that uh, a Chalcedon friend and supporter, Pastor Smokey Stover, had ministered there for 35 years. Smokey was retiring, and somehow he got the idea that the person he'd like to replace him was me. And it just so happens that because of, of the present financial situation at Chalcedon, we are supporting worthy projects. There is no money in the budget to pay uh, me a salary, and I'm not complaining about that. I, I, it gives me a sense of moral superiority to say that I don't take a paycheck from Calcedon. And then I can argue with Andrew when he wants to chop up my column. Uh, and I, you know, I don't have to worry about losing a paycheck that month. So what happened in God's providence is that God arranged for this church to come available at exactly the same time that uh, it was time to move out here to work more closely with Rush and Mark and Andrew. And Smokey did take me on the side of the mountain and showed me the valley and said, all of this is, he is open for a reformed witness, if thou art willing to come and minister among us. And uh, Smokey retired in January, and we moved out here then. Now, reformed heritage is a little bit different than my past church, uh, Lakeside Church in Milwaukee. I left Lakeside Church, I left the greatest church I've ever pastored. I left a bunch of men who are my brothers and I'm loved in my dying day. They uh, were responsive to the gospel, they were supportive, they were encouraging. Uh, we solved our problems biblically, and it was very hard for us to leave. I wouldn't have left them for any other reason but for the opportunity to work with Rush and the other guys at Calcedon. But what we've got at Reformed Heritage is something a little bit different because now we have a chance to model a church. We have a church that's basically very, very small, just a few families, though by God's grace we're adding a few each week, but men who are committed to Chalcedon's vision. We don't have to kind of fit in with a, a broad sort of reform perspective. We have an opportunity to build a consistent, if you'll forgive the word, Chalcedonian church. In other words, Rush has been teaching us things for years. Now how do we put those things into practice? 
And at Reformed Heritage Church, we have a group of people who are actually committed to doing that. Now, we did a number of things. The church used to be a fundamental dispensational Baptist church. Tremendous. I mean, that's where it was. Pastor Smokey, over his years, he loved them, he taught them, he encouraged them, and he made them reformed. And, of course, anyone want to guess what happened when he made them reformed? Uh, would have maybe lost some of the he former people. He probably lost about 90% of his congregation. There's something about reformed theology. We get pure in our theology and smaller in our numbers. But the point is, though, is that he ended up with a core group of, of families that are really sharp people. They know what the issues are, and they really want to be obedient. When I came, the first thing that we did is that we talked about how we needed to change the Constitution. And basically, we, we took the last few steps to move from a Baptistic type of, of, of church polity to now more consistently reformed. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Now, I'm a member of the PCA. And uh, the PCA's uh, Book of Church Order says certain things have to be done in a certain sort of way. And as long as I'm in the PCA and in a PCA church, I will do those things because that's the Constitution. But there are a couple of things that always bothered me about Presbyterianism. And that is, we who hold the doctrine of the covenant so highly, why don't we practice it in our churches? For example, in every PCA church or OPC church or most Reformed churches, who votes in church business affairs? Everyone votes. Everyone who's a certain age and, uh, you know, meets a certain criteria, and the criteria is usually very, very simple criteria, is a voting member in the church. Now, that always bothered me. If, in fact, the husband is the head of his wife and the head of his household, if, in fact, he's supposed to love her and serve her and nurture her, if, in fact, he is her federal representative to the world at large, why does he not have the vote in church affairs? In other words, vote by family. Vote by family, not by individuals. <coughs> yeah. This is a real, real problem. Because, you see, in the PCA, and I'm not, I'm not trying to slam the PCA here, I'm just trying to explain in the PCA, there's a real dilemma. Because there's a lot of people who want to admit very, very young children to the Lord's table. They're saying, look, we have our children. They are members of the church. They've been baptized. They have a profession of faith in Christ. They've, you know, they've learned the catechism. But they can't be admitted to the Lord's table. And the reason why is because once you make someone a communicant member of a Presbyterian church, they also become a voting member of a Presbyterian church. And nobody wants 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds or 7-year-olds voting on who's going to be an elder or who's going to be a deacon or who's going to be a pastor or what the budget's going to be or whatever kinds of things they want to vote about. And so what happens is that children are, are unnaturally forced from or kept from the Lord's table for a very, very long time. And that's one of the implications. So what Reformed Heritage has done is we've said, look, we believe that women are equally godly and equally spiritual, but that the family should vote as a unit. And the father gives the vote. It's not that he votes his conscience and, you know, to heck with the rest of the family. But the family should come together. They should be praying over it. Yes. They should be encouraging it. They should be uh, uh, fasting if necessary. And then the father, as the elder of his household, makes his household's wishes known in church business. Now, that's very interesting. At Lakeside Church, we had a lot of godly women who would actually ask us during church business meetings, Pastor, we don't want to vote. We don't think it's right. Do we have to vote? <laughs> and I, those were great ladies, and, yes. and I love them. They're precious. Uh, but in here, we have a chance to do that. Secondly, at uh, Reformed Heritage Church, because we're putting so much emphasis on the family, we are, we are not building a heavy, top-down bureaucracy that so many churches have. We are focusing on individual households doing the ministry that God calls to them. 
We're not judging people. We're not saying everybody's going to get on board in one particular project. We're not having committees that, that take up and eat up people's time. Is it possible to have a church without a committee? Yes. <laughs> well, we do. We have, uh, we have a Wednesday evening men's Bible study. The men of the church get together. They study the scriptures. They argue them. They discuss them. Sometimes they slam the table. No, actually, I'm the one who slams the table. They're all real nice guys. But the point is, the men are committed to that. Then they go home, and they take those same principles in family worship. We're making one of the requirements in a constitution is that every single head of the household has to conduct consistent family worship in his household. And, of course, the kids love this. Now, yes. The kids here are a little bit older than the kids in my last church. They're mostly teenagers. Uh, but the kids appreciate time with their dad. Dad's catechizing his kids. You know, he's instructing them. Dad's leading in family worship. The wives are appreciating it. We are building a consistent application of what Rush has said. The church is not the center of the Christian life. It's the, it's the foundation of it, if you want to say it that way. It's the way that builds a Christian life. But the real Christian life is not lived within the four walls of a church or in church meetings, but it's lived in a man's dominion calling. And so our men are out there, and they're witnessing. We've got one guy who has to travel all the way to San Francisco every day for work. Man. He's witnessing to 14 people on this particular van. They're stuck with him for two hours every single day. <laughs> That's his ministry. You know, he's got a great dominion calling in, in his particular uh, vocation, but at the same time, he's using every opportunity to do that. Same thing, the wives are involved in acts of charity. They're ministering to people. They're inviting people in. And as this church, this little tiny church, and I, I'm almost afraid to say how small it is, it's only like five or six families right now, but uh, I'm but saying it used to be, week. but it's growing almost yes. every week. And one of the things that's most interesting, I think, is that we found that within 30 miles, within a 30-mile radius of Modesto, there are more than 120 households who get the Calcedon Report. Who would have thought? Modesto? I mean, folks, if you're not in Cal from California, Modesto is a little town, you know, in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, and it's a, it's a nice conservative farming town. I love it there. But it's not a big city. But yet we have a significant number of our people, people who read our report, within 30 miles, within commuting distance. That's real easy commuting distance. So what we're doing is we're saying, hey, folks, if you have a good church, praise God, you know, stay in your church, support it, bless it. But a lot of our people have found themselves on the outs. They don't want to be in a church where their children are taken away from them and put in various programs. They want to be in a place where their children are catechized, where the husbands are heads of the households, where uh, people are are committed to homeschooling and Christian education, and now we have a church that's available to them. So after our San Jose conference, we're inviting everyone back to Modesto on Sunday so that we can, uh, we can do a mini conference, and we're going to spend the whole day together. And the thing that I liked about this, Andrew, is that you and I, as we talked about this, and I'm not sure which one of us had the idea, but it started steamrolling, and what we're going to do is we're going to do this every single month. Yes. And so in other words, Andrew and I, we get a chance to sharpen each other and work on a book together. Good, that's great. But we get a chance to spend the whole Lord's Day together. You come together in the morning for worship, have a worship service together. In the afternoon, then we take for a while, we break, the church supplies lunch. There's a little, little uh, you know, playground just outside that the little, little kids can go and run off some energy for a few minutes. Then we come back together in the afternoon and we hear lectures on crucial aspects of restoring Christian civilization. Uh, we've got some stuff that's coming out. I've seen Andrew's notes. He's seen mine. I'm going to say, honestly, nobody else has said these things. This is a different slant. 
It's building on what Russia has been teaching us. It's a legitimate application and extrapolation of it, but it's restoring Christian civilization. It's about where do we go from here? Good stuff that's coming up. So instead of just coming to church, doing your spiritual bit, and walking home, we're spending the whole Lord's Day together. Uh, we're learning together. We're teaching together. We're fellowshipping together. We're networking together. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that God is going to use this to build a very, very strong church. And then what we can do is we can use that church as a model. I mean, yes. obviously, we don't have, we're not in the business of making a new denomination. But you know, there's no reason why other pastors can't take the same model with the same distinctives and plant the same kinds of churches all over the country. Um, and so we can grow, we can have a witness, we can influence people. And Reformed Heritage, you told me a few weeks ago, be committed by God's grace to, in time to come, starting more churches in California and elsewhere exactly. right after the... What we'd like to do, if, if possible, if God gives us grace, is that we know, like for example, California, we have a, a lot of Chalcedon readers and supporters in California, and a lot of these folks write me on a regular basis. and uh, They're hurting. I mean, they, they've been hurt, wounded, terrorized by various churches and I don't blame them right now and so we basically a lot of them will get Russia's sermons from uh, Sunday morning and they'll have a little church service in their home and folks that ain't the worst way you could spend the Lord's Day however you know whether they realize it or not there are probably within 10 miles of them there might be 10 or 15 families that are in the same situation well what we'd like to do is we would like to get those families together form a core group help them to get certain things established, get them a pastor and form a church. Not yes. a bureaucratic denomination, top-down, heavy-handed kind of thing, but in other words, get our brothers together so they're encouraging each other and ministering to each other and enjoying the benefits that come. I think this is really important because as, as I've been in a situation myself where there was no church that I would give my tithe to, there's no church I would give my time to, and so consequently my family, for a brief period of time, we simply had home church for and sometimes two or three weeks at a time. But you know, that's not good for the long term. You know, you've got to have people that you can connect with. Your children have got to have peers that they can reinforce. You've got to have that because one day your kids are going to grow up and you've got to find kids to marry them with. You've got to have mutual accountability and responsibility. The church is more than just one household. Now, it certainly is anything less than a household, but it's also more than it. And so I see no reason why we can't you know, connect people together. And, you know, there, there's room for differences. Let me, let me shock everyone by telling them one thing that we did at Reformed Heritage Church. And I know some of my brothers are going to throw rocks at me when they hear. We took a no standard on baptism. Ooh, this is really controversial. I'm committed to, to pido baptism. I believe in covenant baptism. I teach covenant baptism. But, you know, we got some brothers in our church. They don't have that understanding. So we had one of two things. We could either say, okay, fine, this is a Pido Baptist church, get out. Or we could say, wait a minute, let's make room for differences here. Yes, so now good. we're making the issue of baptism, it's up to the head of the household. He has to pray over it. He has to sit and listen to me yell at him about why I think it's important. But he has the final responsibility for that decision. And uh, I mean, God's not gonna hold me accountable if the head of the household forbids something from happening. So what we're doing is we're trying to be as inclusive as possible without sacrificing orthodoxy or sound doctrine. Now, I'm committed to covenant baptism. I think there are real dangers when we avoid that. In fact, I just finished doing a study on it. And I think my guys are, are, are pretty much along the way. But at the same time, they wanted to hold firm that, that, well, let's not discriminate on that particular basis. In other words, there's more important things to fight about than ain't one of them. 
Brian, as a as a dedicated covenant communionist, what some people call paedo-communionist, what I appreciate is that you were consistent in that area also. And exactly. you're willing to put the elements into the hands of the Christian fathers and let them make the decision on this. I, I think that's a responsible way to address a real fundamental problem. Since when does the church think that it's got all these things ironed out when there are good, godly men on both sides of an issue? And therefore, for example, the, the concern I have about uh, Pido communion is uh, the ability of a young child, for example, to examine himself. First Corinthians 11 requires that. But you know something? That's dad's responsibility. That child is under the covenant responsibility and authority of his father. Right. His father knows where that child's coming from. His father ought to know whether that child was sinning this morning. It's his father's duty and obligation to examine the child. You know, what really impresses me about this, Brian, is you have recognized um, the proper relationship between the family and the church. That is so vitally important, and I think it's really lost today um, in so many areas. I think if families recognize that the church is not a threat to them, they're going to be very, very open to the church. But so many churches, uh, they're so bureaucratic, and they talk constantly about their authority. They want to beat down on the father's authority and exercise authority over the wife, some of them, apart from the husband. Well, I've, that is just, just evil and corrupt. I remember one writer pointed out that if a woman doesn't like what her husband has told her, even though it's in line with the law of God, she can appeal that decision to the church. I think that's the most totally fallacious, wicked, ungodly, diabolical thing I have ever heard. If it's in line with the word of God, then she needs to submit to her husband. Now, if it's a violation of the law of sure. God, she needs to go to the church. But I think if there are families that understand how that these two are, are interdependent exactly. organizations, the organisms, they'll work well. You cannot have a strong church unless you have strong families. You can have a tyrannical church, you can have a bureaucratic church, but you can't have a strong biblical church. The two things are absolutely crucial. The main product, if you forgive me for using a marketing term, the main product that the church ought to be producing is Christ-like character. I mean, that's what we're, you know, we're designed to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, so the saints may be built up for their work of service. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, etc. But, you know, the best place to learn character is not in a church service, but it's in the home. It's the father who molds the, the children. It's, it's the mother who sets the tone of the home. It's, that's where we learn our character. I became a Christian only after I left, left my own home. But, you know, to this day, the sins that I have, that I struggle with, guess what? They're the ones I learned at home. The virtues that I have, for the lot, for the lot of part, are ones that I learned from my mom and dad. They're teaching and training, whether good or bad, shaped me for the rest of my life. Now, obviously, Christ came in and he cleaned up a lot of garbage and nonsense and, and made a difference, but this is fundamental. So uh, we've, we've got to build strong families, and yet, uh, how we, we, do we build strong families in the average church? Well, we have a, a youth program and a singles program and this program and that program, and we split the family up and send them in different directions. What we want to do is be consistent. Strong families make strong churches. Um, and put those two things together. And we hope, hopefully, that, that there are a lot of our brothers and sisters out there who've been waiting for exactly that kind of approach. Another point, you, you really have done something there you mentioned to me that I think is going to be uh, <clears throat> just extremely beneficial to a lot of families, especially in California, where we have great distances sometimes between us. And that is a two-tiered membership program. Yes. 
Uh, why don't you discuss that? For Actually, us? we have a three-tiered membership program. Oh boy. Okay, we have a three-tiered membership program. First of all, we have voting members. The voting members are heads of households, and the heads of households, by the way, also include widows, uh, and those individuals who, for one reason or another, are living in a household, but they may be single, for example, uh, but they're not under a covenant authority of someone else. But we recognize the right of godly, godly widows. They have a, a place as well in there. Those are voting members. Then we have a second category, which is called regular members. And those are just people, it's all of God's people, who are under the d discipline and admonition of the government of the church. These are the ones whose souls the elders are responsible to pray for, to minister to, to love. Uh, we have a covenant relationship with those people and uh, have the responsibilities. And then we have a third category of membership, and those are associate members. And the associate members are folks that share our vision and share our heart and uh, share our, our expectations. But, you know, maybe they don't live nearby. They can't make it to church every week. Maybe they can only make it once a month when we do our special all-day thing. Well, you know, instead of just being out there and feeling like you're an ecclesiastical anarchist and you're all by yourself and nobody knows me and, and I'm not responsible or accountable anywhere, instead you can join with us and we'll provide oversight. And yeah, I'll ask you embarrassing questions. I'll ask you how the catechism's going with your kids. I'll ask you how you're loving your wife. I'll ask you whether or not you're respecting your husband. I'll help you if you've got financial problems. Uh, you know, in terms of finding out where and how to set a budget and how to, you know, save and spend and get out of debt and all that kind of stuff. We'll help to encourage you and, and counsel you and, and do all those sorts of things. But you can't always be there every week. Maybe you live 50 miles away and it's too far to travel on, on every particular Sunday. So by taking care of all three types of individuals, we have those who agree with us theologically, heads of households, regular members, and then associate members, we can minister to a broader cross-section of people. Because, you know, I belong to churches where they told me in the Constitution, you're expected to show up for every meeting. Every time the church doors are open, you're supposed to be there. And I thought, but I don't need to be there all the time. So why are you making me be here? Hey, that's okay. We'll leave it in your discretion. If it's too far for you to travel on a Sunday morning, fine. But you've still got people who pray for you, who call yes. you, who write you letters, who counsel you, who love you enough to give you a kick in the pants when you need it, because that's what it means to be a pastor. And that's what it means to be a part of a church. So we're providing all three things. And that last classification, I believe, will appeal to a lot of people in these days when, let's face it, there are just some pretty bad churches out there. And they live in an area where, let's say there's only a... A, a liberal um, Lutheran church and uh, perhaps a, a very wild Pentecostal church and perhaps a, a uh, post-Vatican II Roman Catholic church or mm -hmm. a dispensational church. Um, and they're not trying to avoid church, but on the other hand, they can't in good conscience join a church that teaches contrary to what their family believes in doctrine. This will provide a, a means of, of association and oversight. Yeah, and now they'll have a place to send their tithe. Exactly. Yeah, I said joke. That's sorry. No, no. But you know the thing that uh, I think there's a, a solution there that, that it's very hard for most people. One of the things I think we should do, if there is no good church in an area, we ought to be considering moving to place someplace where there is. And I think every head of a household has to face that question squarely. I'm not going to second guess him. If a man says, no, this is where I'm supposed to be, look, you're responsible to God, you're responsible for your family, fine. But that's something that a lot of us should think of. But sometimes there are reasons that you can't move somewhere. God has put you in a position, and you, there is no other place to go. 
Well, it works both ways. By finding people like that, maybe there are ministers who would be willing to go to that town to start exactly. a church. And if we can put some of those people together, yeah. See, I think going back uh, to what we were talking about earlier, this, this talk about uh, Reformed heritage, and obviously I love my church and I love my people, and obviously I'd like to see it grow and become you know, more successful than it is, and I have a vested interest in doing that. I, I want to make this church so successful that I can bring on an associate in a year's time and uh, let him do all the dirty work while I get all the glory, <laughs> and, uh, and I can work more for Chalcedon. But it really, the, the two things that we've been talking about this evening is the future of Chalcedon in terms of how do we prepare for the future. All of these things tie together with right. what we're doing as a church. This is a pilot project. I am literally saying I'm experimenting here, and the folks at Reformed Heritage know that. They know that, that they're a test case, and that the pastor is trying to put some things in place so that we can create a movement. We can become a part of a movement. We can actually influence the future. The sad fact is, is that most churches don't operate biblically, even good churches. They've got so much junk in them. So we're trying to find a way of taking all the things that we're talking about here this evening, conferences, books, colleges, seminaries, periodicals, you know, all the things that we're working on, and try to fit that together into a comprehensive strategy for changing the next hundred years. I've got a vested interest, and so does Andrew, and so does everyone here. My kids are going to grow up in a yes. horrible world, and I want to make that world different for them and better yes. for them. And the things that we're talking about this evening, these are not the only way to do it, but there's certainly one practical way of changing the next hundred yes. years. Well, in these two hours, we have been talking about Chalcedon's vision for the future, and as most of you listening understand, there are a lot of things that we'd like to do, and as Rush mentioned at the outset, we're going to need money to do them, so we urge you to pray with us about these things. Write and give us your suggestions. And also, please continue to support us. Uh, nobody here makes a lot of money. Nobody's driving around in Cadillacs. Our <laughs> I was just borrowing Rush's car today. He's got an old Volvo. It must be, what, 15, 20 years old, Rush, something like 19, that. 1980. Uh, 1980. So, uh, 18, 18 years 19 old. years old. So, unlike some of the very prominent ministries on TV, we're not, nobody here has a flashy lifestyle. We're trying to use the money to advance the kingdom of God, and we would urge you to continue to support us, and we're very appreciative of your support. Thank you, and uh, I would urge that you pray for Brian and for the wonderful work he is undertaking in Modesto. Uh, remember Douglas Murray also in your prayers. He's been through a difficult time because of Lois's illness, but she is better, and we're happy to have you back with us tonight. Pray for Andrew and Mark. They really run Calcedon now and are doing a better job of it than I ever did. So I'm very grateful to them and appreciative of what they are doing. And remember me also in your prayers. At 82, my health is uh, not all that it should be. I would like to complete a number of works before my time is up. So pray that I have the strength and health to continue writing for a little while longer. Thank you all for listening. God bless you.